Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. year, over 700 people, many novices, plumped down over $100,000 to climb Mount Whitney in May or September. It takes about two or three months to load, but it is expensive, it is hard, and it has costly and mortgages money. Last year, 17 people died on the top of Mount Whitney. Personally, I think they're seriously lacking in common sense. Kind of like my VW does occasionally, does twice as good as it does. But let's for a moment imagine that uh, I somehow lost my plane and I decided I was going to climb Mount Etna. Now I don't have $100,000 just laying around and so let's say a wealthy businessman hears of my crazy desire and he offers, well, I will take entire expedition. He would buy all the expensive clothing and the gear, the oxygen bottles. He would pay for my transportation, training, even hire a local Sherpa to help me. Totally free to me. But if I accept his offer, I have just committed myself to months of difficult and arduous fact, it could even cost me my life. You could say it is free, yet it is very costly. In a very real way, it is a picture of our salvation in Jesus Christ. All of our pay, our sins were paid in full by the sinless and substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. You and I contribute nothing. It was absolutely paid in full. His finished work is complete. Nothing is left for us to to give. Forgiveness is offered as a free, prepaid gift. But my part, it's accepted. Yet at the same time, there is a great high price of following Christ. It is certain that if I accept that payment, What follows is going to be some self-denial. I may not be able to go to some places I might have liked to have gone before. Maybe there's some things that I would have done that now that I'm a Christian, I won't do. There may be some items that I would have consumed, never even given a second thought, but now I think about it. Will we absolutely sacrifice for the kingdom of God? And for sure, in this weird world we live in, you and I will suffer rejection persecution from 
socialism or leftism or maybe even martyrdom because of our Bible beliefs. And so the passage that we're going to be looking at is only 11 verses. Just chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. And yet, though only 11 verses, it contains a library of comfort and of wisdom. Now, God's word in this passage, as always, is fresh. There's some hard truth. In fact, three times in these 11 verses, he says, you cannot be my disciple if you're going to do this. You can't. It just doesn't work. You've got to make a choice. Are you going to be a disciple or not? Now, when it says, when he says you cannot be my disciple, what it actually means, you're not able. And really, the sense is unwilling. You're unwilling to pay the price. The meaning is this. There are a lot of people, maybe even those who have truly accepted Christ, maybe even some here, that are just unwilling to pay the price. Yet Christ clearly says, if you will say yes, being a disciple, there is a veritable gold mine of spiritual wisdom. Now, all of us, I think, if you love the Lord at all, you would love to feel this fresh spiritual gold. All of us would love to be able to pray with confidence that we're going to get what we pray for. And that really actually is the common sense that you get in the New Testament. Jesus said, the Father always hears me. James said, we have this prayer of faith. We're going to receive and get what we pray for. But where does this confidence in prayer come from? Where does unusual effectiveness in prayer come from? Some people have never hardly even shared their faith. Others seem to just do it so effectively. What is the difference? There is a closeness in your own spiritual walk with the Lord. Just just an excitement about your faith. I sitting there this morning just again saying, I don't see what the world has. They don't have anything close to the joy and the presence of the Lord. It's so amazing. But that comes from answering the master's call. That means coming to him as his son and daughter. So that's the message. Wayne and I sure enjoyed our trip a couple of months ago to see family in San Antonio, Texas, our first time there. Saw lots of rocks and sagebrush and cactus and some longhorn cattle. And heard about two Texans who were trying to impress each other with the size of their ranches. And one asked the other, what's the name of your ranch? And he replied, the Rocking R, ABC, Flying W, Circle T, Bar U, Staple 4, Box B, Bowling M, Rainbow's End, Silver Spur Ranch. The questioner was impressed. He said, wow, that's quite a name. How many head of cattle do you have? The rancher answered, well, not many actually. Very few survive the training. Now this morning, if you are a born-again Christian, You have been branded by Jesus Christ. You have been marked. And I pray we've survived that. We are called by God to be a disciple. Jesus is going to draw a line in the sand in this passage. He's going to say, it's time. You've got to make some choices. You can't just waffle all your life and be a fence sitter. No, you've got to make a choice. Answer the master's call, and your life is going to be blessed beyond anything you've ever imagined, but it's not going to be easy. So that's the message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for inviting us to come to you. Come to you. Lord, it's not just a come to some concept or come to some principle or idea. No, it is come to you. Lord, I confess my of them, I pray that others would learn from them. And I do pray your healing presence would just be upon us. 
those great words of encouragement and encouragement. Thank you, Lord. We're glad to be able to look into your word and see your word. May this day be a day of rest for us. May it be a turning point to say, Jesus chapter 14 verse when the sick with Christ ministered the author is Dr. Luke a physician turned preacher turned historian the Holy Spirit used his analytical and cerebral style and spoke to him on verse 3 we're going to read together two verses verse 25 and verse 26 of chapter 14 There are two phrases I want you to note as we look at these verses, and that is in verse 26, come to me, and then at the end, come to Christ. So let's read it out loud and uh, hear from the pulpit. I use the King James Version, revised version. We welcome to use what you do. I just love the classics and the uh, honesty of this great there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be It said, Then the fame of him went out into every place round about. Not only did it go about when he got there, there was already a crowd, but many people actually went from place to place. They actually followed him, sort of like groupies. The people were curious, but not always so committed. Jesus knew that, but not him. He was on a mission. When the good Dr. Luke described our Lord's demeanor about his mission, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, It came to pass when the time was come. By the way, the time does come. You can, you can push things around for a while, but I promise you the time is coming. Everybody's going to meet God. The time's going to come. You can say this or that, but the time will come. And when the time comes that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. I mean, he didn't have to say a word. You could look at his face and know this man was on a mission. He was focused. He was fervent. From an eternal perspective, this would be his most glorious moment, the crucifixion, the resurrection. But from a human perspective, it would be quite different than what these people were thinking. To them, they wanted a Messiah, earthly Messiah, a king that would just blow everybody away. For the Lord, he was glad to have the crowds, but he knew, frankly, that most weren't at the least grasping the depth of this. Now, his disciples, 11 of them at least, Eleven of them were true disciples. They were good men, young, most of them. They were a wide variety, but they were people who understood what was committed here. Then there were 70 others, we're told, and they probably had a good grip on it. But the majority were not at all prepared for the commitment it would take to make Jesus as Lord of your life. And so his next words are going to test them. Now, One thing you can count on is that our Lord never softened his message for anyone. He wasn't especially unkind, just straightforward. Look at verse 25. Again, Luke 14, verse 25, and there went great multitudes with him. Great multitudes, which is a blessing. But he wanted to challenge them. It says, and he turned. He turned. 
he said unto them. That's a funny phrase, really, when you think about it. He turned. I mean, there was this going on, there was this going on, and all of a sudden, in a very dramatic fashion, with this face that was set like a flint towards Calvary, he turned. Now, the last time Jesus turned was Luke chapter 9. That's when he stopped the bus. He got up and said, um, disciples, um, you need to talk to me. They had just said, well, I know how you can solve everything. Call down fire from heaven and burn them all up. Jesus turned and looked at them and said, um, guys, you're not getting the plan here. I've come to save, not kill people. Now, in Luke chapter 14, I can just picture the crowd. There were people from all walks of life. There was a young mother with her little baby in her arms. There was the hardworking father with his couch cushions. There was the elderly couple coming and following. There were probably some Roman soldiers kind of watching from afar. There was a religious crowd. There was a whole group of different people. There was a buzz. They were following Jesus. And so then Jesus stopped. He turned, and then he begins to look. Eyeball to eyeball. It really means face to face. This is where Facebook comes in. It's face to face. So face to face. He looked at them. He looked at that young mother. He just looked at them. You know, usually we don't stare at people. That's totally not impolite to stare at them. You should stare back at them, right? But when someone stares at you or they've got a message, like when your wife stares at you, you know you better listen. Your parents. But Jesus turned slowly, looking eyeball to eyeball. He wants their undivided attention. Now, why does he stop there? Because he is about ready to lay out a radical message that really to this point he has not done. Now, he had let them kind of slowly come on board. He let them kind of come up to speed. But now it was time to kind of test the waters with them and see if they understood the true meaning of discipleship. So he wants their full attention. Our daughter Elizabeth, Evie, one who was singing up here a few minutes ago, she has never been the one to be ignored. In fact, she was seven or eight, and if I wasn't listening to her undividedly, she would take my face with her hands and turn it towards her and uh, so that I would make sure I talked to her. That's what Jesus was doing. He was taking their faces, and he was looking them eyeball to eyeball. Now look at me. Don't look anybody else. Focus on me for the next couple of minutes. Now what are you thinking? Because what I'm about ready to tell you is going to change your life. You need, to, you need to make a decision. Verse 25, and he turned. Then he said in verse 26, he said, if any person, any man, it just means person, it means male, if any person come to me, that means actually come after me, that's what it means. Come after me, come to me. A disciple is not merely one who joins the Jesus group or is a Jesus person or a Jesus freaky kind of person. He said, come to me. I'm not asking you to come to a precept or a principle or some thought. Come to me. I want you to come to me. And if you'll come to me, if you'll come after me, I'm telling you, the journey that we're about ready to take is going to change your life. Come after me. Now, friends, that is a personal call. He was asking each of them to make a decision, to personally embrace him. Did you know that each of us have been given a personal call by God? You say, well, if I ever hear the call of God, boy, I'll sure do it. You already have been called. You weren't going along one day. If, you, if you're here and you are a born-again Christian, you weren't going along one day and said, boy, you know what? I think it's a good idea. I think I'm just going to start going to church. Did you know that that's not your idea? You didn't think of that. In fact, the Bible says there's never been a person that sought God. 
ever. We don't seek God. That's like a criminal looking for a policeman. It just doesn't happen. God said, I sought you. It's just that one day you finally listened for a second. Now, for some of you, God had to hit you upside the head with a two by four. You've got some marks in your body or whatever to show for it. But all of us have been called. You say, well, I don't know that I've been called. Oh, yes, you've been called. That's the preaching of the gospel. This is what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Whereinto he, whereinto he called you by our gospel or by the gospel. You have received a personal call to be saved. The gospel, the good news. Today God has given me the good news to preach. He brought me here. He brought you here together. And God is calling you to a personal decision. By the way, that's why it is so terrible to reject. Because you're not just rejecting a message or a thought or a concept. You're rejecting Jesus. He personally is calling you. He didn't just call one over there, jump over there, jump down here. No, he has called every man, every person. In fact, he goes on to say that he's not willing that any person perish. You perish, that's on you. Blame God. Despite what some crazy doctrine says, no. If you die and go to hell, that is on you, friend. You have been given every opportunity to be saved. You have been called personally. A disciple, then, is one who receives the call and embraces Christ. Not just a principle or a precept, but someone who comes to the person of Christ. It is a call to fellowship, yes, but it is maybe more importantly a call to following. And there is no journey that can compare with following Jesus. Pursuing Christ will take you from where you are to where you need to be. Of all of life's experiences, your greatest moments and your darkest nights, discipleship means that he'll be with you the whole way. The whole way. That's the, that's the power of discipleship. Yeah, it's costly, but the good news is I'm walking with Jesus. It's been said that the world is perishing for lack of the essence of God, but the church is famishing for want of the presence of God. The presence of God. Do you feel his presence? Well, you've got to come to him. And that's what Jesus is saying. Come to me. Come after me. I want a personal relationship that's so special. Sometimes people get the idea, discipleship means just giving up stuff. No, it means this amazing relationship. And then there are other stuff that's kind of notional. There are four things that coming to Jesus means. Let me share them with you. My thoughts on him. Number one, I believe it is a consecrated relationship. That's a big Christian word, theological word. It just means separated from anything that would contaminate a good relationship with the person of God. It means just putting aside something, setting aside and consecrating yourself. It's maybe a key verse has been said, the mark of a saint is not to touch something consecrated. A saint is not a man without faults. It's a man who has given himself without reservation, set himself over to God. Here's what Jesus said in verse 26 again. He said, if any man come to me, he's inviting you and I to follow him with all of our heart. He's calling you to take steps of faith and follow his way with your life, the narrow way. Now, Jesus was sort of referring to the roads you take here. And everybody's on a road, right? Everybody has a value system, a moral code. They're principles that they follow. And I've done enough road trips in life to know that you need to pick your roads carefully. You know those signs on the side of the road that say no services for the next 74 miles? Believe them. Believe them. When you're on a road trip, you need to pick your road very carefully. And I suppose that's even more true now with these fancy electric golf carts they're calling cars. You better know where you're going. You may not find a plug out there. Where are you going? 
what God is saying is, if you're going to be involved with me, you better check your motives, check your desires. That's what he was asking these people. He was saying, I know you're following me and you're, you're, you're feeling a thrill or whatever, a religious feeling or something because you're seeing all the good things that are being done. And I'm glad for that. I'm not condemning that. But he turns and he looks them eyeball to eyeball and he said, it's time to go further. It's time to go deeper. It's time to go higher. It's time to be different. I want to know your motives, your desires, your thoughts. I want to know the road that you're taking. What is a disciple? If I were to ask you what a disciple is, technically it means learner or someone who is being taught by a teacher. But with Jesus, a disciple is not only learning from him, it is learning to be like him because we come to him. Jesus called his disciples. He said, first of all, he said, I want you to come to me. This is a relationship. I want, to, I want you to be saved. I want to enter into a relationship with you. And then he said, I want you to come after me. Be like me. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ means that we consecrate our life to him. A biblical relationship with God does not commence when we step inside of a church and think we're going to one. It's not even when we decide we're going to be a good person and read our Bible. It starts when we come to him, when we lay down our life and exchange his life. No amount of good works you could ever perform could earn you a place in heaven's gates. Not one. Here's what the major prophet Isaiah said to clarify very clearly. The people were busy doing things, and he said, oh, that's good, but that's not where it's at. Isaiah 64, verse 6. Did you know that we are all as an unclean thing? And all of our, un our righteousness, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What? Did I read that right? Every one of my righteousnesses, so plural, every act, good thing I do on this earth, every good thing I do is actually like a filthy rag. I won't even tell you what that word is, but I will tell you it is, uh, it is like a filthy, discarded rag. Compared to God's righteousness, then if my best day is like filthy rags compared to God's righteousness, then how could I ever qualify for heaven by doing good? No amount of so-called religious food you could eat or not touch. You could never touch pork again as long as you live. You give up all your BLT sandwiches and still die and go to heaven. It's not eating pork or eating pork that makes any difference. There's no amount so-called holy clothing you could wear or not wear that gets you to heaven. You could wear a suit and a tie, a veil, a hijab, a yarmulke. You could never cut your beard or fix your beard. You could have hair to the ground and still die and go to heaven. You could perform the seven sacraments. You could have 100% self-realization like the Hindus. You could follow Sharia law to the T and die and go to heaven. Because not one ceremony, not one ritual will ever get us closer to God. Because, because compared to the righteousness of God, any righteousness is like a filthy rag. A filthy rag. You could house the homeless, feed the starving, help the homeless, hug a tree. You could shave spotted owls and still die and go to hell. Why? Because God said you cannot come close to the righteousness of God. There's absolutely nothing you and I can do to merit salvation. We need to start a relationship with Christ, God says. Here's what Ephesians 2, 9 says. For by grace. For by grace. That's God's grace. You are saved through faith. You're not saved by faith. You're saved by grace. But it's through that act of faith in the shed blood of Christ and his payment on that cross. Not of yourselves. Never of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And it's a gift from God. If, if I get to heaven by my own works, then it's my gift. No, salvation is God's gift. Not of works, lest any man should boast. 
Folks, that couldn't be any clearer. We cannot enter into a relationship with Christ by earning it. It can only come when we come to Him. It is embracing the person of Christ, not a principle, not a plan, not an idea. It is it begins with consecrating ourselves to Him. The classic quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Most people quote him when they talk about discipleship. Salvation is free. Discipleship costly grace. Four things in coming to Jesus, I think it means. Number one, it believes it means a consecrated relationship. Number two, a considerate relationship. If any man come to me. There's an if there. It's not a it's not a slam dunk, it's not a guarantee. A man has to make that choice if you come to him. And there's no sugar coating. Look at the rest of that verse. He said, there's some very dramatic things he says there. We'll explain that in another message. But he talks about hating him. And then he ends by saying, my disciple. He wasn't being arrogant or caustic or being unnecessarily unkind. He was just up front. He said, folks, you need to think about this. In the carpentry world, they have a saying, measure twice, cut once. They, the idea is to really measure this thing out. There's no fine print with Jesus. Up front, he just says it like it is. He said, look, here's what it's going to take to be a disciple. Now, you can just kind of sit in the background, be nominal. I'm not sure if you even should call yourself a disciple. Someone put on the bulletin board of a high school a petition. These students have gotten together and uh, kind of doing a little trick. They put a petition on the bulletin board. They wanted longer lunches. And they wanted longer time between classes. And they wanted to start later in the day. And they wanted to stop for school days earlier than they had. And they wanted less homework. And so they had several other demands. And so... They put it up there, and they said, anybody that wants to join us in demanding this from the uh, the administration, sign your name. And boy, as you can imagine, there, there was hundreds of names signed that day. However, <clears throat> below their names, there were some findings. So all these names were listed, but below that there were some findings. And here was the final verse. And if these requests are granted, I agree to be decapitated next week on Wednesday at 9 a.m. Fine print. You better read the fine print. But one thing about Jesus, there's no fine print with him. He doesn't hide anything. He doesn't go around painting sunshine with soapboxes. He never wants us to imagine there'd be no cost in serving him. When these words were spoken, this was towards the end of his three-year ministry, and he his mouth and his mind and his eyes were focused on Jerusalem, on Calvary. In just a few months, he would be crucified on a cruel Roman cross in the very city that so-called was the place of religion. And Jesus knew he had little time. He didn't want to mince any words, and so he looked at them, and his words were very direct and demanding. Difficult to hear, I'm sure, for these, but they were necessary and appropriate. He said, you need to get serious. You need to get serious. Nancy Craig is our music coordinator. She is absolutely the best in the whole region and beyond. She's amazing. I'm grateful for her. Now, when she has her choir practice, she uh, says, uh, I want you to go ahead and have a good time, but never forget what we're doing. Go ahead and you know let's enjoy ourselves, but if they get a little bit crazy, she reins everybody in. That's what Jesus was saying here. He was saying, you know, I want us to enjoy the relationship. I'm not asking you to go through life depressed like you're, you know, everything is bad. I want us to enjoy life, but let's be serious about what we're doing. Did you know that Jesus actually never used the word Christian? In fact, he always referred to his followers as the disciples. In fact, the first time that the word Christian is even used. Now, we use the word Christian most often. 
But back then, they didn't use the word Christian very often. In fact, the first time was actually used in Acts chapter 11. And it says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Kind of a different phrasing. What he was saying is that we're disciples, but they first began to call us Christians in Antioch. Now, most Bible scholars agree that it's unlikely that the believers thought of the name themselves. They didn't actually name themselves Christians. The early church had other names for their faith. For example, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul, as well as as he talks in 1 Corinthians, same in Ephesians, he said, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be or called saints. That was what they called each other. Now, most people today, when they say the word saint, they think of some person, statue at a church and all that, but that's not a Bible concept. Then they were called brethren. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse, having compassion one on another, love as brothers. So you'll notice in our church, I'll say brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. That's a, because we're actually all part of the same family. We have similar genes. They're spiritual, thank God. That's why uh, God says in Titus, we've been regenerated. We've been re- we have new genes when we get saved. Hallelujah. But the word Christian, belonging to Christ, really seems to be invented by other people. And, you know, it's kind of even like the name Baptist. It's been invented by the Catholic Church. The Baptists didn't call them Baptists. I mean, that's just emphasizing one beautiful act in the church, that of immersing people. They're kind of stuck, and so many people just kind of use it as a quick way to describe their background. But Baptist or Christian, now, lame brains out there in the world today, they will say, oh, the religious right. What is that? I like the word right. (laughs) Right. Um, Or Christian nationalist. What's that mean? I'm a Christian, and I'm a patriotic American. I love my nation. But biblically speaking, actually, the word Christian is not the word they use. The word that is most commonly used is disciple. If someone were to ask you, um, what is your religion background? Why don't you mix it up and tell them, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, because that's actually the most accurate. I'm a disciple of Jesus, because Christian may mean this, it may mean this, it may mean this, but one thing is sure, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. What is a Christian? It is one who's repented of their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1 and verse 12, but as many as received him. You don't have to, but go to those that don't. To them gave you power to become the sons of God. Even to them to believe on his name. That's a Christian. But a true Christian in Jesus' day was considered a disciple. In fact, if you weren't a disciple, you weren't considered even a Christian. You say, well, are you saying that Christians have to be sinless? No, not at all. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 1. And I, brethren, he's talking to believers, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as the carnal. So here he separates the Christian world, the believers, into two groups. He said there are spiritual believers and there are carnal believers. Carnal means fleshly. God's desire is that we move from being a carnal or a babe in Christ and be spiritual. Everybody knows that babies are wonderful, but they're not very spiritual. Because to them, life is 100% about them. They don't care about anything spiritual. A mother was preparing pancakes for her two sons, Kevin, five, and Ryan, three. Zoe's began to argue over who would get the first pancake. And so the mother saw an opportunity for a good moral lesson. Thank God for Jesus. And so she looked at them and she said, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. And so Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. Babies are always concerned about themselves. Children, for the most part, are very selfish. But coming to Jesus is leaving that behind. Discipleship is moving from childhood to adulthood. Coming to Jesus is about considering what we're doing. It is about constantly 
consecrating our life to God, and then it is about considering our relationship. And number three, it is a continuing relationship. It's not a flash in the pan, one-off. Back in the day, there was an old uh, Alka-Seltzer that they had. I think they still have it. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, and say whatever the leaf is. (laughs) So some of the pastors got that concept about church people, you know? Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, and then they're gone. (laughs) Get them in the baptistry, and then you never see them again. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, and they're gone. That's not the way it should be. It's continuing. It's not a one-off kind of lifestyle. It says, if any man come to me, and then you're going to be a disciple. You're coming to me. This is not a, I'll check Jesus out for a while. No. Discipleship is, I'm here for the duration. On Valentine's Day, Colleen and I looked at each other and said, honey, let's finish it. We're in this to the end. The commitment call of Christ is always about a lifelong relationship. It's not about gathering once in a while. It's about changing of paths. It's about picking a road. Here's what Paul said, Ephesians 2 and verse 2, wherein time past you walked according to the course, the road of this life. That's the way you used to live. And just so you're clear, tell you who he's telling you, who's seeing you're listening to, the principality of the air, the spirit that now works. Goes on to talk about the children of disobedience. In life, you and I want to do our own thing. We do what we want, how we want, when we want, with whom we want. But when you accept Christ, and then you accept the challenge to be a disciple, it's no longer about me, it's about and Christ. It's kind of like getting married. Two become one. In yesteryear, two men were traveling on a train going along when one of the men asked the other if he would like to do a little bit of gambling for his party. The man looked at the other gentleman and said, well, I, I would love to, but I have no hand. Embarrassed, man apologized. I'm so sorry. I didn't see it. Just then the other man pulled his hand from out underneath the table and took a drink of water from the cup. Fellow looked at him with shock and a little bit of irritation said, I thought you said you didn't have any hands. He said, I, I don't. These hands are mine. These hands are Jesus's hands. They belong to him. And that's really what we're talking about here. Notice what it says in verse 20. It says, if you come to me, if you come to me, then you're my disciple. That's what discipleship is. You no longer go your own way. Halfway through my first year of college, secular college, well, I was preparing to begin pre-med courses at Emory University. I heard the Holy Spirit's unmistakable voice in my spirit to preach the gospel. So I obeyed. Surrendered. Said, okay. My life would have looked a lot different had I not done that, but I'm so glad that I listened to God. Now when you listen to God, it means you're listening to the Word of God. Not the Word of the university. Not the Word of your friends. Not the Word of the culture. Not the Word of some song Taylor Swift sings. No, we're listening to the Word of God. We're here to do the will of God. And that's what Jesus said in John 6 and verse 38. He said, I came down from heaven. And did you know that I actually didn't come to do my will? I came to do the will of him that sent me. Jesus held in his hands the perfect law of God, God's will. And that's what he followed. Didn't you love it a few months ago when the new speaker of the house, Mike Johnson, said, if you want to know my worldview, go get it out. I love that. That's a discipleship statement right there. Because following Jesus is a Bible relationship. And it leads us into the greatest life we can ever have. If you accept his mercy like the thief on the cross, you have immediate forgiveness. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. All 
charges against you are then dropped. You're clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. You're given full acceptance as God of righteousness. You are set free from every sin you've ever committed. You no longer have bondage to sin. You may think you do. I hear people all the time saying, I'm this way, I'm this way, I'm an addict. Not if you're a Christian. Oh, no. It's okay to admit our sin. That's different. But I will promise you, you have been set free from sin. He then imputes to you His righteousness. Here's what it says in John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. It's not temporary. My peace I give. Not like the world gives. Drinking a booze, smoking some dope, whatever people do nowadays. It's not peace the world gives. I give real peace. He said, if you will come to me, and if you will enter into this continuing relationship, I'll give you directions through the maze of this life. I will promise you again, following Jesus is not a 50-yard dash, it's a marathon. The Christian life is a life not measured by days or weeks or even years. It's really measured more by seconds. It's a lifelong relationship, but it demands absolute discipleship and lordship. Jesus is not going to follow you. We are called to follow him. There might be some habits we need to let go of. You may have to scrub the agenda you imagine for your life. I never imagined I'd be a pastor. In fact, I even remember telling my Sunday school teacher, there's one thing I will never do. I'm an eighth grade Sunday school teacher. I told her, there's one thing I will never do, and I will never be a pastor. Well, there you go. I've been telling the Holy Spirit I'm never going to minister in Hawaii, but he's laughing. He says, ah, you just can't do it. There is a fourth coming, not only consecration to Christ, but not only being thoughtful and considerate, and not only it's a lifelong journey, it's not a flash in the pan, Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. No, it is a continuing relationship. Nothing better. Nothing better. And he turns. He said, come to me. You'll be my disciples. And I'm telling you, he said, it's the best relationship. It's the best thing you could ever imagine. Because this relationship not only is good here on earth, but it solves our eternal issues. It gives us salvation forever. That wonderful old hymn says, Amazing Grace, and when we've been there 10,000 years, <laughs> we'll still be shining bright just like that. Because where Christ is, is where the Father is. And where the Father is, I'll be there. If any man come to me. But what God is saying here is, if you'll come to me now, then in heaven, We'll still be together. You'll be separated for a time. When you come, you're going to come to me. You know the greatest thing about heaven is not that there's going to be golden streets. That's going to be amazing. But the greatest thing about heaven is not that there's these incredible mansions. It's that Jesus is there. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 says, We are confident. I say, and willing rather he was willing he would rather be absent think about it than be with you but he said if that happens I will be present with the Lord we're going to look at the mansions and say man Absent from the body, present with the Lord. The greatest thing about coming to Him is that it's a lifelong, eternal long relationship. It's not absent from the body, present with the angels. Absent from the body, present with all the amazing glories of heaven. As good as those things might be, it pales next to that continuing relationship. He takes us to a far better place. And it's this personal, wonderful task of time with him. You know, when you 
catch up with people you haven't seen for a long time and you miss that friendship or that family. You just like, oh, just so wonderful. The great thing is that, folks, that's exactly what's happened here. This choice to come to Jesus, to get saved, and then to say, I surrender all. It's not, you're just not in heaven until your left hand's cut off. You're not in heaven until all your good deeds wear off. I talk to people all the time, well, you know, I'm just trying to be a good person. You know what? Praise the Lord. We need more people to commit to that. But friends, how long will 10 good works last in eternity? Or 100 good works? Or 1,000 good works? If it were possible to pay our way. Not that, first of all, those are like silver rags compared to my righteousness. But okay, so how long is that going to buy you heaven? year for every good deed, you better get started. I don't want to be there a thousand years or 10,000 years and said, that's it, time run out. No, I am in heaven because I came to him. And because of the relationship of Christ, I am, he is in me and I am in him. It is an amazing thing that he is saying here. And he's also saying in Eve's purpose to be my disciple. Eve's glories that you'll see in heaven you'll find things even on this earth that are so amazing. No matter where you are in life this morning, God wants you to come to Him. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is the greatest adventure, not only in this life, but certainly in the life to come. I was once asked to speak at a conference in the southern part of our state from time to time. The folks who organized the conference said, we actually would like to give you a free ride to it in a private airplane. Kind of exciting to me, so I was happy to go. So um, I met there at the airport and got on this plane, small little plane. No idea what kind it was. But here is my point. Now, they invited me their expense to go be with them. I accepted the offer. I then committed myself to that plane. If it flies safely, I am saved. If it crashes, I die. Here's the point. The minute I said yes to the free offer, I was totally committed. I had entrusted my very life into the hands of that pilot and those people who made that offer. Jesus Christ freely offers to all, anybody, nobody excluded. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. It makes no difference how sinful, bar none. You need to understand, when you come to Him, He's no longer your enemy. You're bought with a price. Because the Master is saying, answer my call. Be one of my disciples. And if you do, you're going to have such things in your life you never imagined. But the greatest is that, that we come to Him. Lifelong, eternal long relationship with Jesus Christ. Now here's the bow. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www thehomechurch.net From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.